2020, 21, 22, I think we're just the beginning of getting back to sort of a, a normal situation where all this diversification and these uh, trend-following strategies will be superior. And, you know, that's one of my main goals in life is to see trend-following elevated to its proper position where it should be. And uh, we're just continually reminded of other managers, famous hedge funds that have these really bad, horrible periods and trend following just keeps cooking and going right along. And so I think I agree with you that uh, people underestimate how dangerous the world is and how crazy things can happen and how trend following is the, uh, one of the best solutions. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Hey everyone and welcome to another edition of Top Traders Unplugged where today Alan Dunn and I are joined by Jerry Parker who is the founder and the chairman of Chesapeake Capital as part of our mini-series focusing on the one investment strategy that beat everything else in 2022, namely trend following and managed futures more broadly. First off, Jerry, it is great to have you back on the podcast, even if it's only been a week or so ago since we last spoke. Thanks so much for joining us uh, today. Alan and I have very much been looking forward to our conversation are you still hanging out in Florida, or where are you today? I am in Florida today, and thanks for having me. Yes, I'm still in Tampa, headed to New York uh, City tonight, and uh, going uh, to the Beyonce concert. Oh, I shouldn't have admitted that. Uh, I have a reputation, but uh, yeah, no, wife wants to go to Beyonce. I went to see Barbie last night, so I'm very diversified, Niels, and uh my entertainment choices. Exactly. And you know, of course, what the uh, the our neighbors here in Scandinavia, the Swedes, they realized that actually Beyonce, because she was having three concerts in Stockholm, pushed up the inflation rate of the whole country. <laughs> so uh, anyways, there we are. The Fed has enough to do as it is. And now Beyonce is pushing it even further in the US. There we are. Now, before we dive into all the different topics we're going to discuss today, I would like to set the stage for our conversation a little bit so that the audience knows a bit more about the evolution of Chesapeake Capital as a firm, because I think like 99% of our listeners probably know your background as being part of the Richard Dennis Turtle Program. But I would like for you maybe to talk a little bit about sort of the broad evolution of Chesapeake. For example, I noticed on the website that the executive executive team today is made up by you, Mike Ivian and Neil Ladd, both of whom I obviously worked with back in the 90s when I was part of your organization. But I'm curious to know a little bit more about who else kind of you associate yourself with in the firm today. And also maybe not necessarily diving into the detail just yet, but maybe you could share a big picture overview of some of the different research avenues you've tried over the years. Because, for example, I seem to remember back in the 90s, 
you were sort of doing something in the single stock futures markets, but now, of course, it's single stocks. And I don't know if there was a period in between where you didn't do it. So I'm kind of curious about bringing people up to speed on the evolution of Chesapeake as a firm. So you can jump off anywhere you, you want, Jerry, and and talk about it. Great, great. That's uh, a question I get that often, but it's a long story. In uh, 1988, Chesapeake is formed after the turtle program kind of ends after four years. We all scattered and went back uh, to where we wanted to be and started our own uh, fund, you know, and uh, Chesapeake got a good start. Uh, we had a good track record. It was so key coming out of that program. People believed the track record. They thought it was legit. They'd heard of Richard Dennis. I've told the story of going to Wall Street, walking around, trying to get meetings, and I called up the guy who headed up Merrill Lynch Managed Futures, and uh, his uh, person answering the phone said, uh, well, he's not interested in talking to you. And I said, oh, well, tell him I'm one of the turtles. And she comes back on the phone, and she's kind of laughing, and she goes, yep, come on up. Come on up. We'll talk to you. So all due to Richard Dennis, you know, and uh, starting out and getting my start with uh Paul Saunders at Kidder Peabody, and they've given me money to manage, and it was just a wonderful beginning. And I, as you said, I soon met Mike Ivey and Neil Ladd, and I think they've been at Chesapeake for over 30 years, 35 years. So we've worked together for a long time, just great people. Mike is a great researcher, computers and math guy, and Neil has been uh, the head trader and president at compliance and all that sort of stuff. So it was a great, great group of people. They were just uh, fantastic and still are fantastic to work with. Uh, Chesapeake was one of the first, I would say, you know, managed futures um, dedicated firms with, at some point in time in the 90s, you know, John Henry and Chesapeake were getting a lot of uh, the public fund money from Merrill, Smith Barney, Morgan Stanley, Dean Witter, Prudential. But it was kind of uh, not a great situation in that um you know, a lot of this money was very expensive with 10% loads, 12% loads. So that was kind of a challenge. Uh, thankfully, we had a big, big, huge commitment like a lot of CTAs uh, from Abu Dhabi who pretty much uh, carried the managed futures industry fund, you know, I don't know, like 20 years maybe. And uh, that was a great, great client. So yeah, it was uh, a great start and a great beginning for us. And we had a, many, many years of, you know, managing billions of dollars and then it all kind of came crashing down uh, when mutual funds came around and uh, CTA mutual funds, and then the public funds went away, and we were not very prepared for um, replenishing that uh, asset base. Now, I mentioned in the introduction also that, of course, you are known for your uh, very strict adherence and belief in trend following, of course, and a specific way which we're going to talk about of, of applying trend following but I'm just curious a little bit if you can share some, maybe some of the experiences along the way to getting to where we are today in terms of maybe, um, I wouldn't call them detours, but there might be other things that you've tried and where you've kind of realized that maybe that's not for me or maybe that's not the best way of doing things. I mean, you were very fortunate as one of very few people, I imagine, who were given kind of uh, a set of keys to the golden rules very early on in your career. Most people have to go and dig for years and try and fail and try again and so on and so forth in order to find something that they believe in and something that works. 
So I'm I'm sure that that must have had an impact in terms of how you, in terms of how much you want to deviate away maybe from what you were told. I don't know. I'm I'm curious. Oh no, you're 100 right. I took it more seriously, you know, than anyone else by far. I think, and I still take it very seriously. The philosophy, the the Ten Commandments. Maybe there's 20. I don't know. Richard Dennis, what he said to me and what he said to all of us. It was quite an experience because it was just not here are the rules, here's how we trade. It's the f- philosophy, the math, the statistics. And from day one, it was all about uh, you know follow these broad rules and broad ideas, and you'll stay alive forever. You know this is this is to help you stay alive forever. Not you know just things are going to change, the markets will change. You'll have to change with them. But uh, I was you know really a you know a situation where we. We're told uh, of these eternal truths, I would say, and I took them very seriously, and I still do. And I think I left. I felt like I came to this realization recently that, for for rich and for I think most of the turtles, it was never really about trend following per se or necessarily trend following. It was systematic trading, and so once the turtles got away from Chicago in 1988. It became kind of, okay, there was maybe a little bit of trend left or a lot of trend left, but it became more do whatever you want to do as long as it's systematic and researched and back-tested. And then I think uh, Rich and Bill, especially Bill, sort of famous for saying and telling people like straight up, I don't do anything that we taught the turtles. So uh, as kind of like a negative, like, oh God, if I did anything like I taught them, how dumb would that be? And so... (laughs) I just like, I don't care what they say, you know, I'm a trend follower. So I kind of left there thinking we're all like trend followers, but I think I was the trend, the person who was sort of dedicated to the trend following and not, you know, and of course, uh, systematic uh, trend following, but everyone else I think felt more freedom to uh, expand and change than I did. Because I believed what they said uh, as much, probably more than they believe it now. They probably listen to what I say on some of these podcasts and go, oh, I don't think that anymore, or you have it all wrong. You took it to some extreme. And I think that's just my personality, is that I really wanted to dig deep into these rules uh, in philosophies and uh, have that carry me. But I didn't always follow the rules. I did have periods where I kind of uh, went off the track. So I can talk about that if you like. Sure, by all means, yeah. Yeah, so I think there were periods, you know, when we started out, um, one of the, my contingents about this sort of classic trend following is it has all kinds of problems with drawdown and losing trades and volatility, and it's just, you know, really difficult. Uh, as you've talked about many times, there's many good ways that other CTAs try to mitigate and create more smoothness in the returns. So after about 10 years, we had like 10 years of winning years in a row. And um, so I think that that was our conclusion was that these type of systems with all their problems, they were very consistent on like an annual basis or trailing 12 month return. That's what the market was saying. If you're willing to suffer through these drawdowns in this uh, really low sharp ratio, then uh, you will have more consistency. And we certainly experienced that, but, you know, we just couldn't resist the temptation to make it better. So at some point in time around 06, 07, we started experimenting with uh, things that uh, I talk bad about now, profit objectives, uh, smoothing, 
the dynamic position size. And we did all of that. We did all this fancy back test and uh, correlation management, volatility management, you name it, we were doing it because we were hearing everyone else was doing it. We needed to graduate. You know, we needed to get bigger and better and more and smarter. So then, of course, after the just few months of trading this way, we just noticed performance that we had never seen in the back test before. <laughs> the classic mistake. And so um, we just apologized to ourselves and said we would never do it again and reversed course and went right back to uh, more of the classic one entry, one exit, and a stop loss type trading. Okay, good stuff. Alan, sorry, I uh, I kind of uh, dived into some of the things, but I'm sure you'll pick it up as you always do by diving into to the first uh, major topic we want to talk to Jerry about. Well, I mean, the first major topic is is on this theme and topic of philosophy. So, I mean, I'm curious to get um, Jerry's sense on, you know, what, what, what that philosophy is exactly. I mean, in the sense that some people are trend followers, but they have a belief, maybe they've seen the statistical evidence of serial correlation in, in markets, and whereas others have more of a sense, well, this is the way I've observed markets uh, trading from from their time as a discretionary trader. You know, we've seen that with other people. So, I mean, with, with Jerry, obviously, on the one hand, you said he was given rules, so he's kind of given a philosophy in a sense, but then you were... You've embraced it more than you say than, than than the people who gave it to you. So so so, what is the what is your belief in markets that that prompts you to be a trend follower, or your belief about markets or the behavior of markets? Uh, well, I would say that I'm afraid uh, and to do something other than trend following. You know, and I liked everything about the built-in risk management without sacrificing the ability to make profit. You know, and from the early on, it, it was uh, trading should be hard. Trading is difficult. Uh, choose the, the the tougher path. If there's something out there that's going to make it smoother, better, be very skeptical. Uh, some of the cliches were do the hard thing, do the right thing, follow the rules. Um, I, you know, I've said many times that um, the answer to every trading question is the same. It's something about sample size. So. I talk about that a lot. No one seems to care except me. Trade sample size was a big deal. I mean, they just talked about that all the time. And so uh, we're very impressionable and they were very smart people, the smartest people I'd ever met. So I was keen to take in all of this stuff. Then they gave us the money. After we lost money, they gave us more money. We had this very pretend uh, situation where you had the, the perfect mentor is the perfect client, uh, the genius type people had already started with uh, backtesting and Bill Eckhart is you know, really a genius math guy. It makes me very nervous to be in the same room you know, with those guys, honestly, because they were just so, so, um, so overwhelmingly smart. And you know, we got there and we thought we were really, really smart people. You know, they, they handpicked uh, 20 people and then you sit in there and have a, call, a talk with them. And you're just like shaking your head like, oh God, this is just too much. But I think, uh, yeah, you know, uh, I just love the trend fund. I never could uh, break it down and, and say, okay, I'm not, I, I can't. There's every part of it, taking the small losses sounds right. Letting profits run sounds right. Massive diversification was a big key with them. One entry, one exit, and a stop loss. I think that was big. Volatility is not risk. This was sort of drilled into us. I never could prove any of this these things wrong. I remember Rich came to visit us once, and I, when I had Chesapeake, and uh, probably 
2000s, and he said, and I asked him, I said, hey, we did this back test on uh, stop losses, and the turtle stop losses do not look very good in the back test. They're too short term, uh, two ATRs. And his response was, oh, yeah, that's true. That's just something I, a personal preference of mine. And I was like, oh, crap. I thought we were like looking at the back test and doing the perfect systematic trading. So when we did our own back test, we sort of went that direction and we had no personal biases and kind of, there was, there is a truth that I think uh, there were just different types of people coming off the floor, living in Chicago, growing up in that type of trading, being on the floor, then getting off the floor and incorporating the math and the science and the back testing, the computers, you know, they had a little bit of both in them that we didn't have at all. So everybody evolves and has and it changes a bit over the years, I suppose. Okay. And in terms of that, you know, evolution, I guess, you know, you touched on how you made some uh, changes and you changed back and, and then you kind of, uh, you know, uh, forgave yourselves for, 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 for trying it in the first place. Um, I mean, how do you balance that kind of idea of evolution with too much tinkering? It's the classic uh, dilemma. And, and, and being adaptive uh, uh, versus, um, you know, having style drift. So, I, I mean, how do you think about that? Uh, what, what's your framework for saying, okay, here's a potential area for, for enhancement, but we've got to be careful that we don't deviate too far from the philosophy? Yeah, I don't know how we just, we would deviate, but we did. You know, we would have ideas. We had, we had smart people and fast computers. We just couldn't resist uh, changing changing things up. But I think... My goal, you know, at the firm or my job at the firm was always working with this research team and keeping them on the straight and narrow and kind of saying, no, we can't go down this route because it violates some of the ideas and principles that I was taught and just trying to restrain us and pull us back in. Um, I think, uh, you know, obviously the biggest change we made over the years was going from a short-term look back, 20-day look back to hundreds of days now. And becoming very, very long-term, uh, we've been accused of sort of buy and hold. I sort of hear a lot of managed future CTAs talk about long-term or longer-term look back, six months, 12 months. Uh, but also people will, will say, wow, if you're going out that far, it's kind of, um, it's kind of like buy and hold. Uh, I do feel uh, bad sometimes that I, that I haven't evolved as much. I hear people talk about how they've evolved. And I'm like, yeah, I guess I haven't really evolved very much except this longer term look back. Uh, but we were on the forefront of expanding into equities, single stocks, trading as many commodities as we can, currencies. Oh man, so many currencies and cross currencies, interest rates, futures, and all the different markets. I heard about a, as a new interest rate, I heard about the other day, it may have been on your podcast, but uh, the three-year futures, there's a three-year U.S. Uh, futures uh, by, uh, note market. I had never heard of this before. And so we just added it like today. So we're fiends on adding these things. You know, um, I ventured into uh, recent, you know, over the past few years into ETFs, mortgage backs, tips, corporate bonds, uh, muni bonds, uh, junk bonds. So we're always looking for anything. The securities markets, the stock markets, they give you a lot of opportunity to go out and find interesting companies and interesting things to add to. 
Yeah. And in relation to that, obviously, that sounds like the big change going from 20-day breakout to, to a much 100 days or beyond. I mean, what prompted that? And how did you get comfortable that that was the right thing to do? And I mean, could you shift back at some point or, or what, what would prompt you to change that again? Uh, well, we had poor performance. And so we were thinking like, yeah, our performance is too, uh, it's not that very good. And this was the late 90s. And then I just started putting up weekly charts. Uh, sort of daily charts. And I would just go through all the markets that we traded and I was saying, wow, look at those big trends. If you put up a weekly chart, you see some one, two, three year moves that are just amazing. And I told the research team, I'm like, let's research this. And um, I made it my uh, project to go through all of the big trades and all of history of the markets that we trade. And I, just with my chart, I just CQG machine with a channel breakout, I just noticed that um, what looked to me like some decent parameters. And so I told them, I'm like, okay, I'm going to tell you what I think the parameters are going to be. And let me know if that's what the uh, the back test says as well. And they said, yep, that's exactly what the back test says. So I was just able to sort of, um, from from like a really unscientific point of view, look at these charts and say, oh man, it really looks like, you know, one year holding periods might be optimal. And then we would compare that to um, the 70s and 80s and 90s. And it was like, man, these long-term systems, they did well back when we were trading 20-day breakouts. So it wasn't like they were just getting well. The markets were sort of changing. And now is a time to change. No, this longer-term approach was always better, depending, obviously, upon how you you define better, not from a sharp ratio point of view, but more from a uh, risk risk one dollar to make three point of view. That's how we kind of look at it. You risk one to make three. Uh, what is that small loss? What is it going to cost you? And then what are the winners going to cost you? Uh, which are they going to make for you? And that's kind of how we do it. We kind of ignore, you know, uh, volatility and uh, drawdown on open trades and things like that. Okay. One of the things that we normally ask you about is is kind of like you know, trend following versus diversified trend following, so trend following plus other systems. So, we, I, you know, I know you're very much a strong advocate of, of trend following plus nothing, so we won't, we won't go into that. But, I mean, when you're running a trend system, there's a number of kind of key decisions that you've got to make that, that helps define the program versus competitors. So, you know, as simple as what level of volatility you're going to run at, uh, but then obviously kind of number of markets, risk allocations, speed, um, stops or not. I mean, some of these will be more, have a more meaningful impact on the overall performance. What's the biggest, the most important decision you think you have to make? Well, I've made us so many big mistakes in uh, over 39 years, and they usually revolve around two things, which Rich uh, told us in 1983, this will be your two mistakes. And one is trading too large. And I think that's the most important thing. You want to stay in the game and staying in the game will be difficult if you trade too large. And I've done that many times. And of course, the second one is uh, follow your rules, be disciplined. Whatever system you have, even if it's an average system, if it's followed 100% of the time, it might uh, have better performance than a better system where the people don't really follow it as, as much as they should. So I think and then, of course, if you trade too large, that kind of starts impinging on your ability to follow the system. You're losing this money. You have to come in with some sort of money management override or 
uh, capital preservation rule. And you really don't want to have to do that very often because nothing is going to have better performance than your set of rules. Um, so I think those are pretty important. Uh, I think you can trace fewer markets. You're not going to die. You're going to stay in the game. But it's really hard to beat um, trading small and trading a, a pretty decent system. Yeah. And what is too large then? I mean, how, how, how is that a too, too you know, because most people think in terms of a target vol, but, but, you know, obviously that has to then translate into a contract size, et cetera. And, and obviously it's personal. Yeah, I guess some people have different risk tolerances. So somebody might be happy to run a 30 or 40 vol program. Um, is, is it just a personal matter or, you know, obviously for, for a program to be valuable to investors, it has to be run at a, meaning, a meaningful level of volatility. But what's, how do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's difficult for people to undertrade. So I think uh, I don't think there's much danger in that, honestly. And it's never been a problem for me. I'm always maybe a little too aggressive. I was laughing because I, as soon as you said that, I thought of Mulvaney. And uh, it's just personality. Um, you know, Niels and I have debated this subject. Um, whatever your preference is, that's that's a good reason to do it. I understand that you have to have a system that you can trade. But you have to hold yourself to a high standard and do hard things, do things that you don't like, accept drawdowns, take small losses, go with the trend, have a winning, a winning percentage less than 50%, uh, watch big, big trades turn into losses. So these are painful things. And I think trying to get rid of them, maybe, uh, and because you don't like it, I don't really, uh, I wouldn't want to go down that path. I want to continue to hold myself to a higher standard and pursue excellence and pursue the best trading system I can. It's probably going to be something that my personality really doesn't enjoy and doesn't like. And I think these choices, they do make a difference. But I do think the one thing that your personal preference should definitely have an impact on is your trading size. So for Paul Mulvaney, uh, you know, obviously he doesn't, he has a different personality than me. I want to make 15% a year or 15 to 20 in a good year. And he wants to make 15% a month. So that I won't complain about. I mean, you just got to figure out a way to stay in business and not lose your clients and lose your capital. But um, yeah, so I think, you know, whatever, it's a personal decision, as you said. The other things I should, I think you should, that should not be personal decisions uh, in the sense that, um, yeah, stay away from ease, comfort, and pleasure. Trading should be hard. It should be painful. It should be very annoying. And uh, if, if your systems are creating uh, things that human beings don't typically like to experience, you're probably on the right track. I want to jump to something new, but I also want to stay a little bit longer uh, on this because Alan covered quite a few things that I was about to bring up. So I just want to add a few things to it. You talked about the parameter selections and you talked about, um, because I think this is actually quite an interesting uh, area uh, in terms of what we do as managers. And you talked about how you, by looking at charts, you, um, you were compelled to become more long-term. It's not my impression, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's not my impression that you change these parameters very often. But it is my impression when speaking to managers that most, including the firm I work for, actually have some kind of um, process of ongoing analysis and parameter selection, recalibration, whatever we call it. So I'm kind of curious, you, you mentioned you in, 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 in just your own words just now that you want to pursue excellence, becoming the best trend follower you can be. 
And I'm thinking, well, we don't know what the best parameters will be in the future. They're most likely not the same as they were five years ago. So have you ever considered using some kind of process, ongoing process for parameter selection? And if not, why not? Well, the way we approached it, well, just to be clear, you know, I just was guessing and, and I was going to go with the back test. And just because my eyeballs said hundreds of days breakouts, 100 to 200 or 300 day breakouts are better than what we were doing. And I guessed correctly. So we, we were definitely, um, do, you know, doing what the back test said. Um, but really the way we approached it was what's the shortest term we can trade and have a healthy average trade, have a healthy win percentage, uh, have, have a healthy average win versus average loss, these trade stats that we wanted to look at. We were very keen on trade stats versus taking too much away from the equity stats. We just never thought that that was a good idea. <clears throat> we were interested in our batting average and how many home runs we were going to hit and how many doubles and triples, but we didn't think the game was going to play out in the future like it had in the past. So our big question was how, how short-term we should trade and how long-term should we trade? And so once we sort of established those goalposts, uh, we don't want to get too shorter term than this and too long, no, reason, no reason to go really longer term than, than uh, X. Uh, then we just said, well, okay, let's do those two and we'll trade a bunch of things in between, just um, in increments of 50 or 25. So it was like uh, we were just sort of wanting some diversification in our systems. And then we found out that uh, there is a sweet spot in this one entry, one exit, one stop loss breakout method where everything you uh, choose, all the parameters, historically, they make, they make the same amount of money. So it didn't really matter over the entire test period which ones we chose. We just chose as, as many as we could trade. Another thing, too, I wanted to say is that it's all another thing that um, is sort of one of the Ten Commandments is use all the data. So there you have it. So how much can you even change? How much is, you know, once you have 20 years and you're in the business for another 10, now you have 30 years of data. Now I'm up to 40, 50, 60 years worth of data. So we use all the data. We don't use the most recent data. We don't only, we don't overweight the most recent data. So how can you even, you know, it's the chances that when you run a back test, that it's going to even change the parameters and all of a sudden system four of eight is going to have performance that's no good using all the data. Maybe you want to get rid of system four. You know, the chances of that is very low. I do think that as the markets proceed over time and maybe things will get more choppy, uh, worse trending markets, um, that maybe our system one will have to go away because maybe it's a bit too short term. So I do, I could see that over time, um, on the edges, maybe system eight is too long-term, system one is too short-term. So we have to get rid of them or adjust the parameters a bit. But I'll be pretty shocked and pretty disappointed to start seeing a major fall-off in all of our systems. Uh, then I'll just hang it up, I guess. You know, at some point in time, uh, you know, maybe trend-following, even long-term trend-following may not be able to stay in the trades the whole time. And then you know, give back too much money. That's really, for me, what it's all about. I think that's the goal of the researcher. I want to stay in the trade and not get bounced out too quickly, whatever that means. There's a major trend going on here. <clears throat> I need to be in it. I need to stay in it. I can't be getting whipsawed and looking back and saying, wow, look how far these markets have gone. I really didn't make any money. And that's pretty easy. 
But then the hard part is, well, if you're going to use that parameter, how much of the big profit are you going to give back? And so you, you want to walk that fine line of staying in. But since we're only going to use that same parameter and not uh, change it at all with a vault or correlation uh, exit, then we're really sitting there with, well, I hope this, you know, really long-term exit doesn't give back all of our profit. And, you know, sometimes it does. Now, the next section that I normally bring up, I was really struggling about how should I ask you this question because I normally talk about, you know, if CTAs have become too concerned about their sharp ratio because um, there was a paper by Cliff Asnes that he co-authored back in 2022 and I think he wrote it because he felt that some managers had started to include more non-trend components in the strategy. So I thought, well... You know, what's the real, what's the question that they're really asking in this paper? And and that was, uh, I think, kind of whose sharp ratio should we be concerned about? But I also felt that I already knew what you're going to answer. And that is, well, we shouldn't be concerned about any sharp ratio. So I want, I need, I think, to phrase my question differently. So I came up with this and that is, why should we not be concerned about the relationship between the returns we generate and the volatility it comes with. Why should we not be concerned about this? Well, you didn't give me a heads up. so I'm No, I didn't. To... I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> nor should you, nor should you. Uh... But then my follow-up question is kind of, and I know you touched upon it a little bit, um, but this was obviously um, before I knew what you were going to say, and that is, you know, you want to stay true to trend following. Okay. But you also have, and, and I know you are a very competitive person, You so I think you have an ambition, as, and I think you alluded to it, to improve the strategy. So, again, and it relates a little bit back to the sharp, even though we may not think it's super useful in some ways, but it does provide some level of information, though. So I'm just thinking... What would an improvement even look like? How would you measure an improvement if if it doesn't involve some level of better relationship between, say, return and 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 volatility? I know it could be return and drawdown. Of course, I'm aware of that. But so I'm just trying to. I accept what you say in terms of because I also I'm not a great believer of, of sharp in our world, right? because a lot of the volatility is from the upside. So I'm aware of that. But I'm trying to 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 dig a little bit deeper here and say, well, how, what would an improvement look like for you and why? Because if I was an investor, and I certainly the lot, most of the investors I speak to, they would rather have a 10% return with a lower vol than a higher vol. So it certainly has some importance to them as investors. Anyways, I, hopefully you've had enough time to just think about the topic. Um, oh, yeah. Well, uh, what I was going to say is that, oh, yeah, listening to the CTAs, um, you asked them this question, and I think almost every one of them said, um, oh, you know, it's not a great idea for Sharp. It doesn't fit with this non-normal distribution with the outliers, uh, with the positive skew. It's not really for us. But then they would kind of go on later and talk about using Sharp. So... Uh, I was a little confused by a lot of that. Only I, my recollection is only one, uh, Bruno Aquatica, he totally embraced 
uh, sharp. So I think the problem with it is it just um, penalizes, you know, unfairly and inaccurately. It's just an inaccurate measurement of of um, risk, and it penalizes and prevents one of the cornerstones of trend following, which is letting your profits run. And trend following separates the profits from the losses. So it's totally natural uh, to have a systematic approach that does that as well. And what we're trying to protect is that capital in our account. And we're not protecting at all the open trade profits. We're letting them run. And this is how we're going to make more money. And uh, and so I think it's, it doesn't flow to the bottom line, which is the, um, the volatility doesn't flow to real risk. I think uh, some uh, managers who have a certain money management scheme of u- using um, current equity every day as their trade level to size the new trades, I think that that causes problems and probably is, uh, for them, it probably is some necessary, necessary for them to use other methods than a trailing stop or a stop loss. But for me, I use sort of my uh, capital in the account, the closed trade equity, and um, then that gives me the freedom to follow the trades or follow the trends and not override the trend until override the position until the uh, trend reverses. I think uh, to answer your last question, um, it's what I said before. I think that uh, people do want all kinds of things. And I think it's up to me personally to tell them, really, you don't want that. I need, let me give you what you need versus what you want. And I think what we can substitute with uh, a control of volatility is consistency. And I think that is what Chesapeake did for the first 10 or 12 years, make money every year. Of course, that is a lot of that is just due to the calendar, but um, a more consistent uh, 12-month trailing rate of return is what you'll get from these plain old classic trend-following systems that, uh, that open up the possibility for giving back but uh, open profit, but they really are consistent in the long run and over you know, a, a year period. So I think that is what we should strive for, staying in the game, being consistent, and not succumbing to what people want, what clients want. You know, when the turtles left, when the turtles were taught, when they left Chicago, boy, we had a really big chip on our shoulder about clients because clients were going to steer you wrong. They're going to tell you things uh, that you should not do, going to pressure you to take those profits too quickly. And I think it's just borne out to be so true. Um, we, if you go to your clients and you say, hey, I know you don't like drawdowns. I know you like smoothness. I could give you that without any sacrifice. Of course, they're going to take it. And I think that that's, uh, people don't like to eat their broccoli. Jerry is just always saying, eat that broccoli. Uh, buck up, do the hard thing, do the right thing. And that's why I have very few clients. Uh, well, I can't disagree. Uh, you know, obviously, I, I I don't know. I mean, you you could be right uh, about these. Um, I mean, because I actually think that clients also want consistency. Um, they maybe they want high sharp and consistency, but I think consistency is, is actually very important. I think that's a, that's a very important um, point you bring up. But I, I have no stats. I have no insights as to one or the other uh, creates that. But I do think, and it kind of brings us into this inevitable point we always talk about, Jerry. And so why not also today, um, which is a little bit about this role of volatility in the approach, in the process. I'm sorry, Alan, to go a little bit long here, but but it's just, I think it fits in in here. 
Because, of course, your contention is that uh, if you do any kind of volatility management or dynamic position sizing, you kind of give up the outliers. May, that it may be true. I mean, that may be true. Um, it's likely to be true that you're going to make a little bit less on those 5% of the trade uh, trades that are the real outliers. I don't dispute that. I have no stats, but I don't dispute that. On the other hand, let's just say for argument's sake that there's going to be you know, I don't know, 40 or 50% losing trade, so we don't need to worry about them. But I'm pretty sure then if you do apply some level of, of volatility, um, um, I don't want to use the volatility management because that's not what it is, but dynamic position sizing, I, I do think it's true that you will make more money on that 45% or whatever that number is that is left on those trades. And overall, that could actually be beneficial for the total um, performance. I've heard people say, many different people, not just CTAs, but many people, observers of, of, of markets that, and I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on this, that actually markets tend to become more volatile around turning points. I mean, I started out as a trader, and so I followed markets for a long time as well, and I think there's some truth to that. It doesn't mean that they can't go back into the trend, of course. Um, but I, I do think that there is it is true that volatility tends to pick up around turning points. And obviously, there is a chance that these turning points becomes reversals. So uh, so I'm just curious to hear your thoughts about whether you think that that, that could be true or whether and, and why you kind of want to... Because it's not that you don't think volatility is important because you size your positions based on volatility, but you only think it's important on day one of the trade, not necessarily all the other days. And and of course, most managers, I guess, today will take a different view on that. So I am curious why you think volatility is only important on that day and whether or not there might be some truth in the fact that volatility picks up when when trends are likely to change direction. Well, uh, I use volatility on the day of entry to size the trade and sort of normalize the risk across all the markets. And uh, so I don't really use it after that. I try to use the trend following methods, breakouts to determine if the trend has, has uh, changed. Um, I do think that there is evidence, I'm sure that there is evidence that, and I personally experienced it. So Anecdotally, I totally agree that there is a lot of volatility around turning points. I think uh, one of the problems with that, and I listened to uh, Florin Court, Doug, recently, and he talked about it, and that's one of his main things, I think. I think that's the problem, where I heard it as well, yeah. I think one of the problems with that, which I think Rich told us in 1983 on this particular subject, it's a lot of things happened around a turning point Unfortunately, it happened five times before the turning point. And I think that's one of the little problems. But, you know, once again, I can deviate and always get in trouble when I get too far off the ultimate answer for this. And that is basically the sample size. You know, we, we don't have a lot of traits to look at. We try to, our philosophy is of the thousands of trades that we uh, have in the back test, we include the outliers as well. That's a little controversial these days. And we're getting uh, good information of, about how to trade with outliers by this sample size. Some people now are saying that you should not include the outliers in your sample size. 
So I think uh, the more you drill down into these trends as to what's going on inside of these trends, especially the the large trends, the big trends in the turning points, now you're down to a sample size that's so small that um, you start to see that there's issues with that. And I haven't really seen in the backtesting a big benefit to increase these parameters and these rules over just uh, sucking it up and letting it happen and staying in these markets. Because, you know, a lot of times we've seen, especially recently, what looked like turning points, what looked like exhaustion and massive volatility. Uh, and it was a painful drawdown, let's say, but it just, the markets have a tendency to return right back to the the highs and keep going sometimes. So it's pros and cons of both. If if the back test did not give us a good result with one entry, one exit, and a stop loss, we certainly wouldn't do it, obviously. Yeah, no, great. Alan, back to you. Yeah, I, I guess I just wanted to pick up on what you're talking about here. Um, and, you know, what Jerry's saying is very interesting because a big theme that we got from uh, a lot of the CTAs we spoke to was this uh, idea of offering solutions to clients and that it's not about saying this is the way to do trend following. It was saying, well, we can offer you pure trend. We can offer you alternative markets. We can offer you trend plus diversifying strategies. And, you know, I mean, they can reasonably argue that, you know, they want to be in the investment management industry uh, and offer solutions to investors. So is there an inherent conflict between keeping these rules and satisfying investors' preferences? Uh, granted, you don't want to do things that are fundamentally uh, wrong. Um, but it, it, I guess I'm saying, it, it, will, it, will there not always be that tension between uh, following a, a philosophy that people maybe would not do. And and I think the, the, the irony is uh, those the, the, that kind of solutions approach uh, and adding non-trend and, and stuff like that was generally driven by a desire for more consistency. So I think the kind of prevailing view about most people that we spoke to was that if you were a bit more diversified, you would be more consistent and a pure trend you know, wouldn't be delivering uh, returns year in, year out. So just wanted to get, get your thoughts on, on that kind of the difference between running money as an individual and then getting people to come with you and, in, and, and running money as a large investment management firm. Are they maybe fundamentally different? I think there is this always this conflict. Yeah, for sure. It's a big conflict. Unless you're Buffett, you know, at some point in time, whatever Buffett says is gold and people are going to do it. Uh, and, but I don't know of any CTAs, certainly not me, who are quite at that level where if Jerry says it, people are going to do it and they just know that it's right. Now, their feelings are definitely going to come into play. Uh, I think, you know, one of the other podcasts that you guys did that I thoroughly enjoyed was, I think it was CFM. I don't really remember the guy's name, but he was it's from CFM. And he had this famous quote that I posted on Twitter as my pinned, quote, uh, pinned tweet for a while when he said, basically, in his analysis, and I think they're one of the top research firm uh, CTAs going, was that uh, CTAs offer nothing really other than trend following. Uh, there's nothing really going on there. 90%, 95% of the returns are totally due to trend following. I kind of agree with that. I never really wanted to have any sort of negative skew things in my system. Uh, Rich told us uh, many times, he would say, trade uh, systems that don't make money, trade systems that lose money or may, don't make very much money because uh, you'll find systems that fit in really well with your trend following. And we would research that and we would just, we just couldn't get over the fact that we were just going to make less money. And uh, we just really did not want to do that. So 
trend following plus nothing, trend following alone. We try to come up with all these cliches, go out and find people who are crazy like we are, who just love trend following. I learned about it when I was in my 20s. I loved it. I fell in love with it. I thought it was the greatest thing ever. I've fallen in love every day since then, even more. I didn't need any education. I mean, I got a lot of education on how to do it correctly and experience, but I, I didn't need to be persuaded. I think there's five or ten percent, you know, five or ten percent outliers and five or ten percent of the people when you get up in front and you talk to them about trend following, they instantly get it, they instantly love it. There's nothing else they can do with the with the rest of their life. And if you challenge them to uh, live with these drawdowns, live with this volatility, it just makes them stronger. You know, it's just kind of a weird group of people that I'm in, that I'm a part of that just can't get enough of feeling superior by doing things that are hard and sitting through difficult things. Uh, not enough volatility and losses to be fatal and not, uh, you know, not keep you in the game, but, but enough to sort of be uncomfortable. If it's uncomfortable, we must be doing the right thing. Interesting. Um, just picking up on on, on that this whole philosophy and and obviously kind of trend following plus nothing is is the name of the ETF and that's your philosophy too and you know you you tend to be dismissive I would say maybe of the idea of trend following plus say long equities or trend following as ten percent of a role in in a multi asset portfolio you know and 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 the idea that trend is that kind of diversifier. Um, conscious, you know, most people won't w- would find that uh, a, a strange approach. You know, um, you know, I went to a course a couple of years ago, a group of international uh, investment people. I'd say fifty percent of people never heard of trend following or managed futures. You know, so and you're saying to them, you should be a hundred percent in this. I'm conscious. If everybody was a trend follower, would it still work? Oh, that's good. I read a paper yesterday. I uh, tweeted it. You should read this uh, paper. It's um, it was basically trying to prove that letting profits run and taking small losses doesn't work in stocks, and uh, you should uh, let all, let losses run. I think was one of their comebacks on that. And uh, they and one of their conclusions was, thank God that too many people don't do this because it would just cause havoc in the markets. And I I think that's true. Uh, I think uh, proper trend following uh, or classic trend following the way we do, it's probably not a great business. It's not going to grab a lot of people's attention. People are not going to be able to continue to do it. Um, So it's kind of a self-preservation mechanism, but it's going to be for you and your friends and maybe a small ETF. And it's probably not going to grow too much. So it kind of is going to be around, but probably not something that's going to raise you tons of AUM. So the fact that it won't, it'll never be universally adopted means there is an opportunity there for the people who do embrace it. Is that, that, that that's kind of the idea, right? And I think I wanted to mention on the stock. Oh yeah, I am dismissive of a lot of things, but uh, I I have this I have this personality that comes across as dismissive. But our idea is, oh, we embrace stocks like crazy, like we love stocks. We have the portfolio, one hundred and fifty stocks, but we're trend following the stocks, and so. My idea is let's tread follow these stocks with a stop loss, with a trailing stop. Uh, we're following price. If we're following price and we have a decent portfolio that's really diversified in stocks, then we're going to have some shorts on. So possibly this small allocation to CTAs, managed futures, uh, in a traditional portfolio is, uh, is great, but maybe trend following your equities, sell your equities, put it into our fund, 
and then you maybe will have fewer crisis. And so there'll be less need for a, cri a crisis alpha and this allocation to traditional uh, stocks and bonds. I mean, we saw what happened with bonds last year in particular and stocks. And this is one of the reasons I've just never, ever bought into this idea that uh, we should pay any attention, that stocks go up over time, 60-40 works, bonds go up over time. And I just have never paid attention to that. And I've been a diehard trend follower and anything I see and touch and look at, I'm going to try to trend follow it because everything at some point in time needs a stop, a trailing stop and a stop loss. You know, this 8% annual return with a 50% drawdown or more, 90% in the NASDAQ, let's say, you know, a trend follower can never be that bad. Uh, if you wrap trend following around it, and you look at all the data, not just data at the peak of a bull market, uh, you're going to see that uh, the trend following approach is going to at least make about the same amount of money, if not more, and have a, a much better drawdown and uh, uh, profile. And it's the first question you ask me, you know, why do you do this? And I'm like, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I don't care what's happened in the past, uh, but you tell me I can get a decent return and wrap around my trading and all these markets I trade, uh, this massive diversification stop losses and trailing stops, and it's not going to negatively impact my ability to make money, then I'm going to be an extremist on that. I'm, a, I'm an accountant and I'm very conservative and I don't like to lose. And um, you know maybe I'll put 10 or 20% long stocks and 80% diversified trend following, but certainly certainly not the, and, and you know, what's the data say? Go back and look at the data. You've talked about what the data says. Well, I think, the data, if, like, I think most people would say the data says combined the two. And, and but uh, but trend of, following diversified trend following we would get the bulk of that. I, yeah, I mean it depends on what level of volume you're running at. I guess um, it's probably pretty pretty equal. I would guess at at at, a, at, a, at an equal vol basis. Um, that would be my. I'd have to check the numbers, but I would guess it'd be about about equal. Um, but again, yeah, yeah, and even you know we. Intuitively, you would say like the 2000s were very good for were good for trend following, tough for equities. 2010s, very good for equities, tough for trend following. You know, 1970s, very good for trend following, uh, tough for equities in real terms at least. So, you know, you, intuitively, you can you can see why it would make sense. Um, just conscious of, of time, uh, and you mentioned stops. And, uh, you know, we I, I know you enjoyed... Uh, when we had Harold from Transtrend on earlier this year, and Harold told a story about when they started off, they decided not to use stops, and this was a big negative, and people were, I guess, dismissive of, of Transtrend because of, 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 of the lack of use of stops. But they still see themselves as being good risk managers. Um, when you hear that, do you think that's po possible, plausible, to be a good risk manager and manage features and trend following without using stops? Um, I think that it is. And I think I stopped uh, saying, uh, well, I've said it many times on here, but I usually don't say take small losses or use stop losses. I usually just say keep keep losses small or optimal. And I think that's a more accurate statement. Um, when we did our back test and we optimized the stop loss level, we realized it was, the, the average loss was the same as no stops at all. So there was no like uh, problem with, with using a stop loss. It was you could use it or you don't have to use it. And we're like, okay, well, then we'll use it. If it's not going to hurt performance, uh, then we'll just go ahead and use it. 
Uh, I think another thing that's very confusing is uh, when people talk about their back test and the way they trade dynamic position sizing. And one of the things I picked up on uh, your series with CTAs was how complicated and how it's way more than what I thought it was. It's a very uh, complicated way of trading and managing money and relative strength and correlation uh, and all these uh, different things that people have put into their programs, you know, with trend, I suppose. And uh, so it's really difficult to criticize or make comments on how other people are doing things when all I do is, you know, this this discrete one entry, one exit, and a stop loss. So I can only comment on those, really. I really don't have any opinions on other people's systems because I'm afraid that I don't know anything about them. And if people looked at my systems, they would say, well, wait a second, this is, I don't like what you're doing here. It doesn't look very good. And I'd say, oh, did you notice this thing over here? And they're like, oh, okay, yeah, then you're fine. I didn't really notice this thing over here. So, so much complexity and personalization in people's trading that I don't feel comfortable making broad statements other than the ones I've made with, I, I don't think my strategy with uh, entry, with um, correlation and volatility management, uh, dynamic position sizing, it doesn't add any benefits to it. Yeah, no, I mean, obviously, um, um, we, we are sort of uh, nearing the end, but 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 maybe we can squeeze in a, one more sort of little controversial topic that you and I have talked in the past. And actually, I think it is a little bit of a uh, of a new modern view that I hear today uh, that you say that because that's how kind of how I felt. Over the years when we've spoken, when I hear you talk to your tribe, you are, of course, very black and white. And you say, yeah, what we do is best. Uh, no discussion. And 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 you're not shy of, of um, talking about, you know, how other people uh, do it. Where I'm thinking, well, actually, it's pretty, com it's probably quite complicated what to do. So we have to be careful about saying, you know, one is better than the other. So... Again, I was trying to come up with a different way of asking you a question just because I'm I'm curious about your thought process here. No doubt that your approach works. You proved that for 40 years, so that's not the question here. But here's my thought uh, experiment. You know, if we have a very simple portfolio just consisting of two investments, stocks and bonds, and let's just say that for argument's sake, today the signal shows that you should be long both stocks and bonds. But then at some point the signal changes in, say, the bond sectors, and suddenly you're long stocks, but you're short bonds. Now, to you, the risk is the same, right? Because you size your position at entry. But for those who use correlations in their ongoing dynamic positioning, they would probably say, well, hang on, the risk is not the same. Because now you're short one and long the other, that is not the same risk as being long both, because of the way correlations have been over a certain period of time. So because you say that correlations are not important, so to speak, I'm kind of curious why you think all those other firms may be wrong, or maybe you're not saying they're wrong anymore. Maybe there's a slightly different kind of view on it, or maybe not view, but I think you know what I mean, Jerry. It's I'm curious about that kind of difference because we already talked about volatility, I thought I better bring up the correlation point as well. 
Well, one of the things I get frustrated about is I don't ever really hear too much about the pros and cons of some of these ideas. So I, so it's up to me to, to bring up some of the <laughs> Sorry about of that. The cons. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm always talking about, I mean, it's pretty obvious what my pros and cons are, you know, oh yeah, it's great, made money, but you have these big drawdowns and you uh, give back profits. You're consistent on an annual basis, but everybody made money in certain market or sector except you in a certain month because you gave all the profit back. Yeah, I'm not very consistent on the trade by trade, but by not being, uh, by not micromanaging those trades uh, on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, miraculously, we become very consistent on an annual basis because we're following a simple system with fewer parameters. So more parameters, more moving, uh, more rules, these things make me nervous. It gets back to the sample size again. So I don't, given the, given uh, two choices, I'll take the simpler, the fewer parameters, the larger sample size, the fewer rules. And uh, these rules are here for one reason and one reason only. I mean, they work. They're, they're in the back test, so you've got the rules. But once you have them, they're only good for one thing, and that is forcing you to treat every situation in the same way. So that's why I use the rules. That's why I'm always going to, I'm going to disregard uh, your example that uh, two markets are now long, both are long or one's long and one's short. That's two different situations. My goal is to take these simple rules and to uh, do the trade the same way each time. And I'm going to have higher risks sometimes and lower risk other times. Uh, but I'm also measuring my risk from my capital and taking that small loss and not uh, using my current AUM to size these trades and to, uh, you know, to sort of the typical CTA money management, which is using current AUM, let's say. And so the, the, the need to unwind that very quickly, because now this open trade profit that these new trades were, were put on with, now the open trade profit is going away. And so this, this whole uh, other way of the money management and using the, the closed trade equity is uh, so different and so profound that it does, I can see how it would force people, you know, they're doing the wrong thing by using current AUM. My opinion, I'm kind of tongue in cheek. Okay. So yeah, you better do something wrong to get yourself out of this trouble. I am keeping my trade level at a million dollars for the whole year, if not longer. And I'm risk and I'm looking at my risk as a small percent of that $1 million bankroll. And at some point in time, I'll incorporate the profits in a very slow, methodical way, uh, and then go another year or two using that new trade level. So if you're going to do it that way, you're never in trouble. Uh, one of the things that the research shows is that the drawdown in your closed trade equity is always less than your open trade equity. So at any day in history, I could have liquidated the portfolio and never had a capital drawdown. And so things like this really turn me on. I love that. I've never had any positive feedback from anyone else, but I do think that like a good trend follower, you are separating. You are protecting that capital with those small losses. You are not doing anything to protect that open trade profit. So you cannot incorporate any of that open trade profit into uh, sizing your positions. Everyone does that except me. So I think that is an integral part of this whole, you know, we're really deep in the weeds now and we've lost people. But I do think that the pure trend following uh, does include that sort of uh, money management scheme that obviously I did not come up with. And uh, yeah, I don't think sharp and vol and correlation uh, done the way 
that we trade has any relevance at all to uh, risk of capital, risk of open trade profit? Of course, I'm already flouting, uh, thumbing my nose at the risk of open trade profit by having a trading stock that's so far away. Why do I do that? Because the computer says, if you do that, you'll make more money. Well, at least I did my best to kind of bring a little bit of um, of discussion on topics that we've discussed uh, for many years, uh, hopefully in a new light. And um, as I've said many times, um, what I really love about uh, what we do as an industry is that we can kind of interpret things a little bit differently and we can actually all make it work. Because when I look at all these great firms that we've had in the series, um, they've all done a pretty good job over a long period of time, which not many strategies can say or have even been around for that long. And of course, you yourself is coming up for 40 years, which is an amazing achievement. Now, uh, we normally end up with a couple of questions that we've asked everyone. So you may already be very well prepared for these. There's no surprise here. But one is, I'm kind of curious to hear what you say, uh, and that is, what is the one thing you hear about trend following you disagree with the most? Oh, I mean, everything we've talked about, you know, um, volatility matters, uh, sharp matters. Um, oh, I definitely, I think the one thing that Alan was hitting on it a bit, I'm not going to be moved. I don't think there's any reason, any logic, I've never seen anything uh, that would anybody could say to me that would say uh, 100% trend following is not a superior portfolio. Uh, I, th I do think that if I could throw in some renaissance and some medallion fund uh, and have some insights on what's going to happen in some of these markets where there's uh, people have some knowledge I don't have, sure. But for, on the, you know, in the, in the world that we live in, we occupy the sort of normal guys uh, trading and uh, taking positions. Um, yeah, I'm not going to, I don't think there's much evidence that 100% uh, trend, especially with a diversified portfolio like we have. I'm very jealous of Florin Court's 500, adding 50 markets per year. I love that. I think it's fantastic. I don't really agree with him necessarily that these are superior markets. He was really hammering on uh, managed futures uh, CTAs of your inferior markets as compared to his. I don't really agree with that. But uh, I definitely think that when you boil it all down, if you have a good allocation to equity single stocks, uh, not trading, he trashed trading stocks, uh, trading indices. I, didn't, I don't really agree with that either, obviously. But uh, I do think if you have a great portfolio of lots of different markets, as many as you can trade, a healthy dose of equities, you certainly don't need anything else it's too risky to put things in your portfolio that don't have a trailing stop and a stop loss. Yeah. Another question uh, that we uh, also ask at the very end, and uh, and I have to preface this by saying, besides your own new launch of your ETF, uh, what are the things that kind of excites you the most about our industry looking into kind of the future, even though we normally don't predict anything as CTAs, of course, but... Is there anything very exciting you 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 kind of have besides the ETF? Well, I would say that I agree with a subject you bring up a lot, and you were the first person I heard talk about it recently, and that is people don't understand how crazy things can be and how things wild things may happen in the future. 
when you and I got started in the business, we would, um, the marketing material would show uh, trend following programs making more money than equities and with less drawdown. And I think we're going to get back to that period. And I'm excited that uh, 2020, 21, 22, I think we're just the beginning of getting back to sort of a a normal situation where all this diversification and these uh, trend following strategies will be superior. And, you know, that's one of my main goals in life is to see trend following elevated to its proper position where it should be. And uh, we're just continually reminded of other managers, famous hedge funds that have these really, really bad, horrible periods and trend following just keeps cooking and going right along. And so I think I agree with you that uh, people underestimate how dangerous the world is and how crazy things can happen and how trend following is the uh, one of the best solutions. I love that, Jerry. Uh, and wonderful to end on a note where we wholeheartedly uh, agree. And we're going to wrap up our fascinating conversation with you, Jerry. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, sharing your thoughts and insights with us. And uh, of course, we will do this again sometime in the future. And to all of you listening today, I hope you're able to take something away from today's conversation onto your own investment journey. And if you did, please share these episodes with your friends and colleagues. From Alan and me, Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders Unblocked as we continue our deep dive into the CTA industry. And in the meantime, go check out the show notes for this episode and all the other resources that you can find on the website. And of course, not least, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.